Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. Um, good. It's good to see everybody. It's great to see everybody. But we need a second. We got space here. We got space. All right. Um, Kabbalah and Coffee for this Sunday, uh, March fourth. They always ask the. Que- I always ask the question: When was the Exodus from Egypt? What's the answer? March fourth. <laughs> Is it, is, it, is it still going? Is it really? I mean, okay. <laughs> no. Oh no, that was that was the punchline. It was it was that good. It was that was the punchline. Gattaca's March for. <laughs> Just to make sure that yeah, no, it's not the real day. All of this is made up. We're actually still before Purim, which is what I want to start with. Because this week is a very special holiday, the holiday of Purim. And what I want to do is, what I want to do this morning is kind of start off by, shh, you missed the good stuff. No. Uh, I want to start off by, uh, by mentioning a little bit about the story of Purim and to demonstrate how the ideas that we're talking about on Sunday are so pervasive throughout Jewish thought and experience that it actually gets to the heart of the Purim story. We talked about how the themes of this discourse are very relevant to the Passover story. Right? We said how the plagues were all about impressing upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians that God is real, that God is a reality, that it's not that God is somehow separate, a separate entity or a, a force that does not get involved in the destiny of mankind, but rather God is, a, is, a, is an imminent force, is a present force, is a force that does... Um, that is very much in the here and now. This is something that not only is, uh, is something that's pertinent to the Passover story, but as I'll, uh, as I'll share momentarily, it's also something very relevant to the Purim story as well. So the Talmud asked the question. The Talmud asked a lot of interesting questions. Those of you that joined us last month for Text for Two, when we talked about Jewish debate, know that we asked, we, we posed... Um, various uh, points of disagreement between two famous academies of Jewish thought. The Academy of Hillel and the Academy of Shammai. Two big academies. And the academies were formed, uh, were founded by uh, fellows whose name was, uh, were ironically enough, Hillel and Shammai. So they started academies and it was known as the Academy of Hillel and the Academy of Shammai. And Hillel, uh, yeah. That's, more like a bagel. So the Hillel and Shammai were contemporaries. They were also what we might call Talmudic or pre-Talmudic times, but they were Torah sparring partners. And they would have points of... Huh? Sorry? A good way of putting it. A good way of putting it right. And it was all about discerning the truth and coming to a conclusion that reflected the divine will as set forth in Torah and God's vision for what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to live our lives. Of course it was all about that. Um, but the reality is that they saw things in a different way. Their academies, the academies that they, their respective academies, also looked at uh, points of Jewish law in a different way. And one of the questions that they grappled with was this. Is it better for, me, for the human being to have been born or to have never been born? This is one of the points of debate. They debated this for a long time. Is it better to have been born or would it have been better had we not been born in the first place? So that my point of, of this little exercise is to demonstrate how the Talmud asks the 
darn this questions. Ask the, the questions that are, you know, should we exist or not? I mean, these are types of questions that the Talmud asks. <coughs> but the Talmud asks another question regarding the Haldeya Purim. And that is, <coughs> why, what was the cause of the, um, the threat? What was the cause of the challenge, of the, of the decree against the Jewish people? Welcome. Good morning. Right? We know that there was a decree against the Jewish people that uh, the wicked Haman, the wicked uh, prime minister in, uh, in that time to the, to the king of Persia. So he decides to, uh, to set a decree against the Jews to kill them all. Minar v'adzakein, from young to old, men and women, children, everybody, one day, total annihilation of the Jewish people. The Talmud asked the question, again, the question is why, how, what, what's the context of this? Now, it's a very, we have to be careful when we ask this question. Now, I didn't ask the question, so I don't have to be careful. But it's a question that, we have to, that in general, one has to be careful in asking, why, does, why is something negative happening, and then to give an answer for it. But the Talmud does ask the question. As I said, the Talmud sometimes asks big questions, big controversial questions. The Talmud does ask this question. And the Talmud gives an answer. And again, let's understand the question. The question is, what, what caused such a scary moment, such a threatening moment to, uh, to fall upon the Jewish people? And the answer is, because they partook, because they enjoyed participating in the feast of the wicked king, Ahasuerus. So we know that the Megillah, the book of Esther, begins with a feast, a 180-day feast, a royal feast. The king is thrown, and the entire kingdom is invited, and uh, many Jews participate as well. And the Talmud says, because they enjoyed the feast, therefore, therefore, the, the decree, uh, such a, a, very day, a very scary moment in Jewish history, the decree of annihilation of the entire Jewish people, befell, befell the Jewish people. How do you understand that? What's wrong with going to the feast? What might be wrong with going to the feast? They were, they were invited, right? Like, what's wrong with going to the feast? There was a hedonistic feast. Hedonistic feast. Right, give me, give me a more, maybe a more obvious answer. They served non-kosher food. Ah, maybe, ah, so one might say, well, maybe they served non-kosher food. Maybe that's so, like, they went to a feast and they ate non-kosher and that was the... But we know the story. The story is, the story goes. We know, all the sources tell us that they served at that feast, feast kosher food. Yeah, they served each people according to their diet. They served the Jews kosher food. Kosher wine, kosher food, the whole deal. So the question is bad. What's, what was the problem? Did the feast take priority on Shabbat or anything? I mean, was it something that was consecutive 180 days? It was 180 days. It says that the Jews, um, for the most part, did not partake in... They, they didn't go on Shabbos. On Shabbos, they went home. And they continued. By the way, I don't know if the feast... I wonder if the feast carried on. Because on the seventh day of the feast, Vashti was killed. That might have caused a damper. If you know the story, a little bit of a downer when the queen gets killed, not bumped off. Middle of your feast, but... Doesn't somebody get killed on every day of the feast? Um, I don't know. No, that was not oh, was it? Uh, not that I know. But she, she like, just violated. Yeah. Was she was killed. It could be hedonistic. No, it's it's a no. It's a good response. Yeah. I mean, was there was there any? I guess my question is, 
why should they have gotten the fix? Like what? Because <clears throat> they were citizens of the, of the country and they, you know. And they, and, they should, and they should support their government. Ah, right, as you would think. One of the answers that's given is actually the opposite of that approach. In other words, here's the deal. And it really goes, it, it, the point, it ties into all that we're learning. The question is, where do we put our faith? Do we put our faith in human beings? No. Do we put our faith in governments? No. Do we put our faith in prime ministers and kings? If <laughs> Call and response. Now, now I will tell you the the, the the history the history of the Jewish people is littered. History of the Jewish people is littered with uh, with moments in which we as a people have put our faith in the country, in the in our host country, in which we've we've given to the country, we've given we gave to Spain, Portugal. Top, top financial, men, top people in Spain. What did it get us? Where did it get us? Expulsion. Yeah, 1492. And then we were the top in Germany. Germany. So we, th- promise. So we thought of ourselves as too big to fail. To cite, uh, too big. We're too big. We're too integrated. Right. But we know that that none of that is true. Because at any moment something can turn and, and whatever connections you had, the Germans, they took away all the factories, all the businesses. So you had money, you had connections, you had power. You ran the factories and the next day you had nothing. And you were, you were wearing a yellow star and you were thrown into a ghetto and then a concentration camp and then it was over. So what happened to all the money and all the connections? So we know just by, if you want to take a scientific approach, science says look at past performance, right? Look at what has happened in the past to determine what might happen in the future. I mean, not, not predicting any doom and gloom. I'm saying, but look at the past. What we see clearly is that to put our faith in governments and in human beings, not a good idea. Not a great idea. So, many commentaries explain, and the Rebbe also explains, that the, the, what the Talmud is saying what was the issue with participating in the feast? It wasn't that they ate non-kosher. It wasn't even that they were necessarily indulgent and, and hedonistic. It was more along, it was much more subtle than that in a sense. It was that they felt that by going to the feast, that was where their protection would lie. You know, how would they be protected? Well, wherein would their security be found? It would be in cozying up to the likes of Ahasuerus and even Haman and getting close with the Persian, uh, Persian higher-ups. That's where, that's where our security will come from. And here's the point. Here's the point. The foundation. Foundation, I'm calling this, I don't know, the foundation, a foundation. Let's make it a little less uh, uh, of a statement. A major foundation of Judaism is that God runs the world. Why can't it be the? It should be the. I think it should be the. The foundation of Judaism is that God, God runs the world. In fact, at the beginning of the Torah, the first statement is, the world that you see has a creator. In other words, it's not just detached, disassociated, the strong win, and, and, and you have to... It's God runs the world. God runs the world. And so for, for us to put our 
faith and our hopes and our dreams. For us to align with a feast of an Achashverosh, a feast of a Haman, is just a misguided uh, attempt to... It's just not... It's putting our faith in the wrong place. It's, it's making the statement that we can create our security. As we can create our God, so to speak, our gods. We can create our protection, as opposed to recognizing that our protection is, uh, is connected with the, uh, the Creator of heaven and earth. So this is uh, what we see. And, and, and what was the turning point of the story of Purim? When did, when did the, the, in a sense, the miracle emerge? It happened when Mordechai, Mordechai gathers together 22,000 Jewish children, and he gathers together the community, and he says, look, we're facing a threat that we as Jews have never faced before, since the times uh, of, uh, of, of, of Pharaoh in ancient Egypt, where all Jews are under the threat of, of, of being totally wiped out. And Mordechai says, it's time to reconnect to, our, to the source of to the source. It's time to reconnect to the true God, to where our salvation, where our hope really lies. And uh, they study Torah, they fast for three days, and we know the end of the story. Esther approaches the king, and the king is open to Esther's request, and eventually uh, whatever is meant, whatever was planned to happen to Mordechai and the Jews uh, is turned over completely upside down, 180 degrees, and Haman has his downfall. And so, huh? 180, oh, see? Degrees, one degree per day. Exactly. Yeah, and it was about, so really the way the Rebbe explains it is it was a shift in consciousness. Away from my, away from my God is my government, my God is what I, or whatever, whatever I create as the protection for me, as a, and replacing that with, shifting it over to, I put my hope, I put my faith, I put my trust in God. And this is the same idea we're talking about as when it comes to the sin of the golden calf. You know, are we putting our faith in the golden calves that we create, the gods that we create, the gods that we form, and we say, well, this is going to be my comfort, my salvation, my hope, my dreams, my aspiration. This is where my hope lies, in this calf of flesh, of of gold, I'm going to say flesh and blood, but not even, in this calf of gold, or this, this calf that I can, in a sense, pay off. Think about it. It's the, it's the gold that we give, it's the money that we give in order to buy our protection, or do we have the honesty to recognize that there's something a little bit higher than those calves of gold, that uh, where our connection truly lies. And I know the question is, well, if we put our hope and trust in God, so how does the Holocaust happen? And that's a question that we don't have an answer for. But certainly to put our hope and faith in a human being, certainly we know that that's, uh, that that's not accurate. Jen, you had the first question. Yeah, well, oh, well, I have to be very careful. So, so okay, so the, the disclaimer in all of this is certainly at the same time that we have to have faith in God, we also have to do things on a practical level to make sure that we're taking care of, of what we need to take care of. It's like you can pray to God to become a millionaire, but you also have to work hard to try to earn it. You have to, you know, you pray to God to have uh, uh, children that give you lots of nachas, but you have to do the work of giving them the proper education and doing the best that you can and raise them, etc. So you, you do what you can on the ground, but where does your true faith and trust lie? And more than faith, as we discussed at the beginning of this book, your trust, right? In God we trust. 
Still the motto of our money. Send the money, right? How ironic. How I, super ironic that in the money that for so many of us, whether consciously or subconsciously, is our deity, is our golden and or green paper calves. Sounds wrong, but... Um, that on the money itself, it says, oh, reminder, reminder, in case you might start worshipping me. In God we trust. But we don't listen to the money. We don't always take that message. Yeah? Question about what the, the constellations, you know? Because you're, you're talking about gods we create. Yes. And I'm just wondering, are, are the constellations, you know, the path was really just a symbol for Taurus, right? Right. Worshipping Taurus. Exactly. It, in sort of from a from a religious perspective, you know, from a Jewish perspective, is the constellation? It, it's obviously not God. God's one, and, and whatever. But what what is the standing of the constellation? I'm not, I don't think I quite. Get so we we've talked about this idea before that the the constellation is seen in Jewish thought, especially in in, in in the mystical teachings in Kabbalah, as a tool in the hands of the craftsman. It's literally no different than the paintbrush in the hand of the uh, of the painter, the uh, the piano in the hand of the what's pianist. It standing relative to us, to us is the delivery mechanism by which we receive certain uh, certain manifest certain let's call them blessings. So it's neither above nor below us in terms of proximity to God. It's just a, a what's in between us. That's what I'm asking. Is it, it, it does stand so in between. It does, it, yeah, it does, yeah, it does stand above, in a sense, in between, but it's not really in between. Uh, uh, the same question could be asked if you're the canvas. Think of yourself as the canvas, right? And, and upon you is being painted a beautiful scene. Or a scene maybe that you can't figure out what it is yet, and it looks a little bit, maybe it looks a little dark. But it's, it's the scene that's being painted upon you. And so your question is, well, where is it coming from? So if, if you're the canvas, the immediate thing that you see is some brush just, you know, it's like being, do they still allow you to be in the car when you get a car wash? When I was a kid. Yeah, do they? Some places, when I was a kid, okay, so I'll, let me, a little personal vignette action going on. When I was a kid, so I remember this, oh, this was the best times. So before Pesach, my grandfather and I, would go and get the car wash. Not it was all, not exclusive to Pesach the car wash, but <laughs> I, but just of the, on the Pesach there was a full, before Pesach there was a full detail of the car because you got a vacuum because you can't have crumbs you can't have chametz eleven crumbs bread you know if someone needs a bagel in the car or whatever you get crumbs got or chips whatever. You have to pay a little extra for the anti chametz setting on the detailing. Oh yeah, you get well you get, you throw them a, yeah you throw them a few bucks. <laughs> No, so yeah, it was under, totally under rabbinic supervision. And then I was there also. I wasn't. I was just a kid. But I remember it was always the best experience to go in, to get all sudsed up, you know, the car. You got to make sure the windows are closed, manual style. I mean, obviously. Like. <laughs> we had a rotary phone growing up. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we had smoke signals, the whole thing. All right, anyway, so. <laughs> Is that how they do smoke signals? What is it? Yeah. Maybe if they, yeah. So and and, and then it was, I'm not even sure where this is going, but and, you know this it suds up and then those those things those like strips those black strips yeah, yeah. those. It's the best experience, and you're all cozy inside and it's all getting clean outside. It was just a very 
It's a wonderful thing. It's like evokes pass evokes evokes Pesach, getting ready for Pesach, cleaning, and even the car has to be cleaned. Anyway, that's an example of infusing a completely mundane thing with a with a, um, with a lesson with a, with a religious, you know, there's religious. Exactly, your car wash can be holy. This class sponsored by Cactus Car Wash, located on Ponce de Leon Avenue, just five minutes away from Chabad. Okay. <laughs> Tell them, Rabbi Ari. Sin stuck in the crevices. Try our interior detail. You get the most hard to reach sins. Ask for Rabbi Ari's Passover special. Okay. Only eighteen dollars. Okay. So the point is that if you're the canvas. So you're watching, this is where the imagery came. So you're watching the brush paint either a beautiful scene or maybe not such a beautiful scene. Maybe a scene that could be beautiful once you interpret it, but you don't see yet the beauty and it looks maybe some dark colors are coming your way. But what you see, all you see is the brush washing over you. And it's easy to mistake in the brush as the source. Well, that's where it's coming from and therefore I need to figure out how to manipulate the brush. And this is true whether the brush is a constellation, which is more of a, I'm going to call it a little bit more spiritual take on it, or more astrological take on it, or whether the brush is the government, or your boss, or your, boss, or your spouse, or your brother, or your sister, or your, or your parents. What, whatever the brush is, it's easy to say, well, that's where it's coming from, and therefore I need to create change there in the brush. And what we're, what we're empowering, what, 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 these, what, what Judaism, Torah, Kabbalah, what it empowers us to realize, or it empowers us with the knowledge that it's not the brush. It's not, it's not coming from the brush. The brush is the tool. But there's an artist that is holding the brush, so to speak. The brush is just a tool that is wielded by the artist to, to do something. And so as human beings, you know, I'm not going to say we're helpless, but we're, we're not helpless because we're armed with the knowledge. Hopefully we get the knowledge. And once we have the knowledge, then we are armed. But it's ver- we're very susceptible to believing, to completely believing, knowing almost that the brush is what is creating the scene. The brush is what is you know, painting my picture is what's authoring my story. It's all the brush. And again, the, f- the foundation, a foundation, the foundation of Judaism is that it's not the brush, it's God. It's not the brush. When we, when we, miss, when we put our faith, you have to understand, when we put our faith in the brush, it's opening us up to a brush reality. And once we're in a brush reality, then we, co- we become susceptible to the brush. What's the brush we have? That's my question. That's the... That is the, 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 the gov... It's not like... It's not, see, uh, there's different ways to understand it. Very subtle... It closes down to a brush reality? It closes us down to a brush reality, and then, and then there's a few different ways to look at it. What's the brush In other words, a few ways to look at it when it comes to, let's say, the story of Purim. Is it that God says, oh, you want... Achashverosh and Haman, you want them to protect you? Okay, we'll let them protect you. And then God says, All right, is that how you want to do it? Then, then go for it. And if they change their mind, well then that's, but that's what you wanted. 
But that's a little bit of a cruel, petty, you know, angry God. I'm looking at it more of a different way. It's how do you look at it? It's almost you're creating your reality. If you don't look past them, then that's what you see. And what you see is, oh, it's good, it's good, oh, it's not good, it's not good. And meanwhile, if you're anchored to something higher, you always, it's always good. Now, I have to be careful. It's always good. But it's, you're always anchored to a higher reality. You're out of the brush reality. Does that make sense? I want to go back to, to the thing of, of why it happened, you know, why they couldn't go to it. Because it wasn't so much they couldn't go, but how they went mm. to it. And because... Right. They, and see, here's the thing: when they were going to assimilate and try to act, try, try not not so much to like do all the other things, but you know how we, a lot of us do this now. We don't say we're not Jewish, but we try to you know, you know, you know, be Jewish at home and be like a, a citizen, you know. Wow. And it's just sort of like, and, and I think that the, the real lesson is that if Jews don't accept being Jews, then that's when that's when anti-Semitism comes out. Because if they know who we are, you know, you think who you are, you've got less chance. It's like when you try to, you know, hide it somewhere, not not be true to who you really are. And that's what I think, the, 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 and that's why when, when Mordecai brought the 22,000 fish, they said, hey, one point, this ain't working, trying to, trying to, you know, wear the fashion and blend in. We need to practice, you know, we need to make a statement here, you know, to finish it. This is what we're Jews, and this is what Jews do, and this is who we are. This is our identity, and, and, and we're, pr- we're proud, and we're privileged. We're not, you know, and we're not, you know, we don't, we don't want to keep it a secret. We don't have to keep it a secret. Yeah. We might have like broadcast it, but we don't. Have to keep it a secret. And and along the lines of what you said, um, you know, initially the Talmud says, and I said it when I translated, when I you know told over that Talmud says, what was the problem? They enjoyed the feast, so that's I think probably why you said the hedonism. It's not only that they enjoyed the food. They enjoyed being invited to it. They felt like, oh, so now we're part of... They felt like this is where their protection lies. They enjoyed the fact that they were invited to the feast, and now they were... They're now part of society. Now we finally arrived. They enjoyed the feast, and they forgot about where their, where their true, uh, true protection lies. Yeah. Uh, did, were there about 75,000 Jews in there were more. Well, I'll tell you this. It says in the, in the book of Esther that um, Ahasuerus was, was a king over 127 different countries. Which then was... I mean, they, they had a, a huge empire at that point in time. And all of the... The way Jewish history is, is taught is that um, all Jews lived under countries or in countries that were under the Persian rule. So... So the threat really, so there were more than 70, there's no doubt that there were more than 75,000 Jews. It could have been in Persia proper, whatever that was limited to, there were 75,000. Or in Shushan, whatever, there were 75,000 in the capital. I don't, and I don't know that that's true or not, but there were definitely, you know, there, I would imagine a few million dispersed throughout the, the, the did, kingdom. Did they all keep it a secret that Esther was Jewish? Either they didn't know, not, not everyone knew. And yeah, it was kept a kept a secret. Yeah. Well, no one with knew. Twitter and yeah, her her yeah. Yeah, I mean, would be very difficult to pull that off. Yeah. Totally. So it was it, exactly it was totally. Event, yeah. They kept it a secret then. Totally. Okay. A lot of things, yeah, be very difficult for that to to be replicated. Um, just getting back to the uh, getting stuck in the bush reality. Brush. Brush. Brush, brush reality. Um, 
That's like uh, thinking that um, we could solve our problems in the physical within the physical world by by doing things physically. And um, I just think of uh, like an intractable sibling or parent or a child where it's just not working, and you have somebody that's just not not budging. You really can't deal with them. But if you change your attitude and really kind of withdraw a little bit and, and deal with it on a spiritual level so that you change your attitude, you know, give that person more love, it could change your attitude about the person, all of a sudden, oh, they come around, they're inviting you, they're calling you up, and, and everything shifts, but you didn't do anything on the physical level. And you just got unstuck from, yeah. Yeah, and so Mordecai was saying, well, we can't change their attitude until we change our attitude. You know, we can't change their rea uh, the, our reality until we change our attitude about, you know, our health and God and, and how we orient, like, uh, the, um, it's a whole lot more difficult to do things on a physical level because people don't change, but on the spiritual level, then you can you can change, and then they'll, they'll change, and then it yeah. reflects. And and so so what what you know the point of this is to really understand how this theme is so central to Jewish thought, to Torah, to all of the holidays. It's all it's all the central point. Are we thinking? that there are other forces and powers at play? Or do we recognize that God is right here, that God is directly involved, that we have that direct connection, and that God does run the show? Okay, Rabbi, on a, on a practical level, yeah. how do you show deference to people that are in power without being defiant? I mean, is that just... How do you find that balance with, with others, with a boss or whatever? Is that in your relationship to God directly? I mean, because other people are going to... Follow the lead of Mordecai in the story. It says in the, in the book of Esther that as Haman approached, everyone would bow down, except for Mordecai the Jew. But that's considered defiance. Correct. My practicality. What I'm saying to you is like this. The perspective for another human being is... I'll acknowledge, I'll acknowledge your role, but the idea of bowing down, which is to completely put oneself out, that's not re that's reserved for that's reserved for the true power. That's not reserved for any human being. That we always have to remember that we don't serve human beings. Torah says, God says in the Torah, "Be you, you are servants to me, not to any other human being." We don't, as I said in the Wednesday class, we don't have time to be servants to human beings. There's no time for that. We have a hot, we have, there's a lot of work to do to make the world a better place. We don't have time to run around what other people are doing, what, what human beings. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't, uh, so there's the idea of, of, in a sense, respect, or, you know, following a request, etc. And then there's the idea of, of bowing down, which is complete deference and, and giving oneself over. That's reserved for the one above, yeah. You know, could they have read the constellations and, and would the constellations have shown what's going to happen or warned them what's going to happen? In general, so look, when it comes to astrology in general, there are messages there that can be extracted. Number one, they're not set in stone. Even though they're set in stars, they're not set in stone. Mm -hmm. Things can be changed. For example, for example, let's say the constellation says you're going to make a million dollars. So now what? <laughs> Use this example before. Right, so, so now what? So are you going to work or are you not going to work? You say, oh, a million dollars is coming away, so I'm not going to work. Well, then maybe you're not going to get the million dollars. So then you're going to work and make the million dollars, so then maybe you would have made it had you not known it. So it's almost like, 
You can change your destiny. You can lose out on something if you don't put in the effort. So are the messages there? Yeah. Number one, can you decipher it clearly? Not necessarily. Number two, just to live in the moment and make the moment, maximize the moment. Not look to what's going to happen or what's... Not everyone can equally um, read the messages. Yeah, but even if you could read the message, so what's the point? That there's something good happening. So you don't need to read the message. You make it happen. What do you need to know that it could... Of course it could happen. You know what I'm saying? The fact that we can all achieve greatness, that's something that we have the power to do in every moment. So achieve greatness. You don't need to start to tell you you can achieve greatness. Torah says it. But if the stars could tell you that this horrible holocaust was going to happen? So, any, so negative things can be averted. There's nothing negative that's written in stone, ever. Oh. Even a prophecy, which is stronger than an astrological sign, a prophecy. Mm. We know that a prophecy can be changed. A negative prophecy can be altered. Not a problem, yeah. To Jeff's question, I think the challenge, one of the challenges I found when I worked in the corporate world, which is probably why I don't work there anymore, um, is knowing when, when by staying around you can make a difference and when, in, when do you need to leave because what they're asking is really against what you want. I mean, I've worked right. in places, some that didn't have like outright unethical practices, but things that just really didn't sit well with me in terms of my own integrity and bring them attention, it wasn't anything like that I would get fired over, but they'd be just like, well, that's just where the way things are here, and you know, over time, I couldn't I, I didn't I didn't um, my own practices didn't go along with that, but sometimes I felt like by just associating with them that I was part of the problem too and yet didn't feel like I was in a position where I could really change things, but sometimes I wonder you know, are you placed in those positions, because we're meant to be there to to change things like it's I know there's no like black white answer but right. I think it's a, a challenge and it's a challenge and when can you really make a difference by being there and when is it time it's a challenge it's a challenge and there's no and you, as you said there's no there's no hard and fast rule it's literally it comes down to if you can make a difference make a difference if you can you gotta cut it's your losses it's a moral decision really of course I mean what yeah. is within you Exactly. And, it's, and you have to make sure, it's like anything, it's like, Torah says like this, if there's a challenge that you can handle, take it on and conquer it. If you can't, stay away from it. The Torah has vows of abstention. How, how do you know that when you can? I mean, like, it's kind of like... It helps, you know it helps to have stop. someone else to talk to, it helps to have a friend, it helps to have a mashbia, a mentor, a spiritual mentor, it helps to have people in your life that you can, that you can ask these questions to. But it, there's no doubt that really the question comes down to, the question, to, to, those two, to those two points. Either I can make a difference here, and I can change, or if I'm not yet able to do that, or the situation is not able to be changed, then I can't. We have these two realities in the, in the world around us. Sometimes there's no Yeah. You have to be there, you have to leave, or both. No, or sometimes you just have to go, and because and, that's, that's all there is for you. Yeah. I mean, you know, so sometimes, you have, sometimes you have to feel the heat before you see the light. Yeah. And, but, you know, but the one thing we were talking, I think that the dilemma here is that since we have free will, so what we want, what, the, what we're all looking for is an answer, like, you know, like, you know, written in the sky, written, you know, God says, well, if God, you know, tells you what to do, then what's the free will? You know, if he's there for you, you have to act like, well, what's the thing, where, where does God live, where do you let him in? Right. So you have to go for it, you know, and then, you know, it'll be revealed. But, but when, you know, 
Any other? Because I want to get to the moon and the sun. Hmm. <laughs> or our three suns. Four suns. <laughs> Try it. Let's go for it. I mean, when you say there's no time for... I mean, to me, life, the reality is so incredibly complex that, you know, it, just to figure out what's happening right here... It's complicated in itself. Sure. Um, so a lot of times, you know, like, like he was saying, in retrospect, when you've gone through an experience, and in retrospect, when you sort of examine it, then you see how possibly the next time you might take a different route. Or maybe you weren't as conscious of the sort of, you know, blessings within that, or the lesson within that particular thing. But, and if everybody's experience is, is, sort of designed if every soul has to go through the, you know then it's kind of like it, it, I think it's it's very valuable and necessary to focus on what's happening in this physical plane otherwise why would it be so complex well for sure and and I and I think that the, the idea is not not to focus on the here and now and what's going on and and, and work here but the idea is we're you know what is really in control in this moment what is really in control? Am I in, really in control? Are the, is the paintbrush in control? Are the stars in control? Is the boss in control? Or is there something higher here? And the more we give credence, the more we give power to those other things, the more we're putting ourselves at a disadvantage. We are locking ourselves in to a certain reality that's not true and that's a very limiting place. The more we open ourselves up to the truth, which is a higher reality, which is the fact that we have this direct connection with God, the more we're open, to, the less limited we are, and the more we can. We just there's a, just a completely different uh, a different picture that opens. And so, yeah, a little, yeah. About that, uh, just even though uh, we're, sometimes we look for the stars, we look for the you know to the heavens for uh, answers, and even though life is very complex, there's no way we can see everything that's going on around us. But very often, uh, what we're drawing attention to or what happens is our lesson. You know, so this tiny little detail that, that wouldn't be important to somebody else, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, you're walking along, I mean, it, just anything, whatever catches your attention, that could be your, uh, the lesson, and that's all that and, and I, we need to know at that time. And I think that part of that is tied into the feeling that, every, that everything is directed by God. So that, right. that, in fact, makes the moment that much more valuable. Because if, the mo- if, if God is there and all this stuff is happening here, well, then maybe some of the stuff is important, some of the stuff is not important. The more it, it's maybe almost paradoxical, but it's not. The more we recognize that God is right here, the more importance every moment, every detail has here. The more of a lesson I can, I can take from this moment, but I'm looking at it in a completely different way. Now, let's talk about... So, I'm sorry, so wouldn't the paintbrush be used as a vehicle to get you where you want to be? Like you going through that car wash with your grandfather with the things cleaning yeah. the car. You could be really scared, or you could be like you were, really excited. So right. Is the, I'm still trying to understand. The sure. Paintbrush the, 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 as a vehicle as to what you're painting on this canvas? So the paintbrush is really the, you know, the delivery mechanism of the experience. It's, it's how you immediately perceive the experience. It's somebody, you know, it's, it's the person that's saying something to you. It's the, um, the, the experience that's happening to you. 
So you're looking at it as that that's the experience and that's maybe the totality of the experience, is that that person or that thing is happening or doing or saying something, and that's the entire experience. So when you say now, Right, it's a tool for delivery, and and the the truth, the the prof- the profundity of what we're saying is that to recognize that even though that experience is happening through that vehicle, through that tool, there's a much deeper truth at play here, and it's really coming from a from a much deeper place. Quickly, because I want it, we gotta get to moon and sun. We look at it through our own filter, and so even though God is within, but we have, there's a godly soul and there's an animal soul, and there's a part of us that knows that God is there, it's a part of us that thinks that we're here. That's where our lens can get in the way. So, can't blame ourselves, that's how God made us. But, we got to know what's going on, we got to know the reality of the vision, of the limited vision that we might have. And so is it a truthful vision? On one level, it's true. It's true that I'm actually seeing it like that. But is it, is it objectively true? Is it the biggest vision? It's not. The question is, are we going to limit ourselves to that small vision? Or are we going to open ourselves up? And again, this is connected. To, this is it's not connected to our, to our text. It's the whole text. It's what we're talking about. What we're talking about is, are we looking at the world as a separate reality from God? A world that has its own powers and forces and own energies and its own set of rules? Or are we, or are we believing, trusting, having faith that God is running the show? The distinction, as we've been talking the last uh, several weeks, between these two views is, in a sense, the difference between the masculine approach and the feminine approach. The masculine approach is that, and we trace this to the highest Kabbalistic realms, the, the, the masculine energy approach is that there is, a, there is a separation, a distinction, between the world and God. The masculine perspective is that the void of the world, the space of the world, is in a sense empty from God, and God exists outside the space of the world. God is infinite, the world is finite, and finite and infinite don't really have much conversation, there's not much crossover between the infinite and the finite. And so God is, uh, you know, God is an outsider to the world in a sense, and we have to draw God in by doing certain things, or we've got to fix the world, we've got to bring in stuff. Whereas the feminine perspective on God in the world is that God is imminently in the world. God is the world. God is Mother Nature. God is Mother Nature. The nature of the world is divine. The energy of the world is all divine. God is here. This is the feminine approach. This is the difference between the sun and the moon. We spoke about this maybe about a month ago, a little bit more than a month ago, in one way. I want to speak about it a little bit differently today. The way we described the interplay between the, the sun and the moon last time was that the sun is the masculine and the moon is the feminine for a very simple reason. For a very simple reason. The sun provides the light and the moon receives the light. So as we explained in the Sfirot, in the higher supernal realms, we have the spherot, the energies of Zah. Remember the six emotional energies and practical energies of Zah. 
six firot, that are giving their input, that are emanating chesed, emanating gvura, emanating teferet, emanating love, emanating uh, discipline or severity, emanating compassion. So these are forces that emanate. Malchut, we said, the tenth and final sphere, the tenth and final energy, Malchut, is the recipient that lies at the bottom of all of these. To receive, it's a vessel that receives the higher the energies that are above it. So Malchut receives the energies, collects the energies, and then creates something, and then reflects it or creates something new in the, in the subsequent worlds that didn't exist prior. So we said that higher, the, uh, the six energies preceding Malchut are the masculine energies, the giving energies, the energies that, that, that are giving their, their uh, whatever their definition is, and Malchut is a recipient. So we said that the sun, the sun and the moon have the same interplay. The sun is, is the source of the light. The sun is giving the light. The sun is a, sun is a gas, right? The sun is a luminous gas. It gives light. And the moon is a recipient of the light. The moon takes in the light and then reflects the light. Reflects the light when the sun cannot or in a place that the sun cannot. When I say place, time and space were converging. So at, when the sun is not around... Right? So the moon has the ability to shine the light. So this is very similar to Malchut, the role of Malchut. So you have the energies that are shining, that are illuminated, that's Svirot. Svirot means shine, four energies that shine. Right? Svirot are spheres that shine, luminous spheres. So they're shining in the world of Atzilut, let's say the world of emanation, godly divine energies, Chesed, Gvur, etc. They're shining. Malchut is the recipient, is taking in the energies and then reflecting it down to a world where the direct sun or at a time, in a place, in a context that the, that the sun, the spherot, are not shining but the moon is shining, the moon has a relationship there. Malchut has a relationship there. All this makes sense so far? The moon what? has a relationship? The moon is shining at night. Right. So the sun is not there. The moon is that which is providing light. For the first two weeks, like it's just when it's Let's talk about the general role of sun versus moon. So the sun provides, the sun is the source of light. The moon has a direct relationship with the sun. The moon has a direct relationship with the sun. What's its relationship? It is receiving the energy. It is not the source. The sun is a a rock. The moon moon is a rock. (laughs) Third rock, we said third rock from the sun, right? The moon is a rock and the sun is a ram, okay? Huh? Huh? So the... (laughs) I got it. So again, the sun is a gas, is a luminous gas. The moon is, again, the moon is a rock. The moon is a, a solid body. Right? Moon rock. Right? Moon rocks. They don't exist in the sun. There would be sun rocks, but they don't have rocks in the sun. Huh? Moon rocks. This is like rock, paper, scissors. Without the paper and scissors. Exactly. <laughs> So you have the moon again, again, understand. So the moon is, is, the sun is the source of light. The moon is receiving the light and reflecting the light to a place where the sun cannot. When I say to a place, yeah, but the sun also shines on earth. When I say place, I mean place time, place slash time. When it is not shining, right? The sun is not shining. The moon is providing light. The moon is not the source, but it's re- reflecting the source. Same thing, Malchut. The the, the, the the brightness, the energy of, of the world of emanation, the world of Atzilut, lies in the higher, the other spherot, that's called, which we're calling Zah. Malchut receives those energies 
does its magic, takes it in, as we said, we're going to talk about this a little bit uh, in depth, as much as we can, and then reflects it down to a world that, that is otherwise dark, in other words, to our created realities. So, which sun or moon has a relationship, in a sense, to us? Za or Malchut, which have a relationship to our created world? Malchut. I want to share another angle on this. Look at the distinction between sun and moon. And when I say distinction, tell me some differences. Let's talk this out. What are some distinctions between sun and moon? I know we spoke about gas versus solid or versus rock. Shapes, good. What else? Give me something. Temperature, good. The sun is there all the time, but the moon waxes and wanes. That's what I want to talk about. The sun is consistent, and the moon is not consistent. Think about the message of that. And what does it tell you? What does it tell you? What, is it, what, how, what do you feel about that? What does consistency represent? And what does this waxing and waning, what does this inconsistency represent? I'm not sure. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, what, but what I'm thinking about is the fact that we, 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 our characterization of the moon is based on predominantly... I mean, half of the time, something's blocking the light. Yes. Right. Half the time the moon doesn't receive the light. And I'm just curious about whether that filters into the idea of Malhut. Well, let's keep on talking about that again. But there's a distinction. The sun is constantly in... Look, our perception, we're making our perception now, in a sense, reality. This is all the given that we're, that, that we're, we're drawing lessons. The fact that we perceive things in a certain way is also divinely orchestrated. So if we're meant to take lessons from what we experience, so then let's take a lesson from how we, how we experience. I know the truth is sun, sun and the moon are always doing the same. But how we experience sun and moon, we experience one as a constant, we experience the other one as something that fluctuates, something that's not constant. What is the message, once, what is the message of that? What do you have? Okay. A hundred, right. Okay, good. But what? Uh, I'm totally with you. I'm totally. But I want to focus on the the, the difference between consistency and not and non-consistency. The inconsistency is it's organic. It's like our, it's a symbol of who we are. That's why we based on because because we wax and we wane. We go. We we're not like constant. And so the 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 the, the, the so the life of the moon correlates to the life of man. Whereas the sun. It's more like God. I mean, it's like, you know, it's more like forever. Two perspectives, two perspectives or two energies of the divine. One perspective said the masculine perspective is that God is, God is, God doesn't, again, the, the, the Za perspective, the masculine perspective is that God is at, removed from the created reality. God is above, and in a sense, God is pure, and God is constant, and God is infinite, and God is. When something is fluctuating, when something changes versus something that is consistent, the message is that the consistent, the consistent energy is about itself and the one that is fluctuating is about something else. So when you're about something else, so you have to change, in a sense, according to what the needs of the other are. If you are... I'll give you an example. A teacher that teaches third grade history, social studies... What are you learning in third grade? Social studies? <coughs> I don't know. Whatever it is. Two ways to teach. You have the same lesson plan every year, and you're teaching the same lesson plan consistently. Versus, 
you, you understand your students and you modify it based on what your students need. Students' needs are that particular year based on the, the specific needs of your students. So one lesson plan, one teacher is going to be absolutely consistent. Every day you know that when you walk into, when you walk into class on that day, day number 30 of that year in that class, you're going to get the same lesson plan. It's always the same. Versus somebody who is modifying the lesson. What's the distinction between the two? One is about whom? Themselves. And one is about the other. One is about self. One is about the recipient. Mashpia makabal. Giver or recipient. The question is, what's the focus on? Focus on self. Focus. So the two, the masculine and feminine perspectives of God, as we've been as we've been uh, stating. The masculine perspective is that God is God is something higher than our world. God is God is removed. God is aloof. God is God is pure. God is infinite. God is outside. The feminine perspective is that God is here. That God is imminent. God is involved in the world. Well, the more God is involved in the world, that means that when the, the definition of being involved in the world means that there is a, a consideration of the world, the way the world works, the way the world runs. In other words, you're, you're looking at the recipient of the light, the recipient of the energy, as opposed to looking at the source of the energy. The question is, are you looking at self or are you looking at other? Zah is all about self. It's all about the powers, the divine powers of self, whereas Malchut is all about the other. So Malchut, it's about other, so it ex- it's expressed by the idea of waxing and waning. The idea of fluctuation, because it's about other. And other is subject to change, because you're working with other. If you're not working with other, so you're consistent. A parent, a parent that doesn't take into consideration the needs of individual child, the, the individual child has the same rules that are inviolable, that are rigid, and don't take anything into consideration. That's a sun perspective. The moon perspective is to understand that each child has his or her needs. And every child has to be dealt with, has to be worked with on their own individual levels. Not that there shouldn't be any rules that are across the board, but the idea is, are we rigid to the point that it's not about, because it's about us, or are we flexible because it's about them? That's the distinction between the sun and the moon, or the the representation of the sun and the moon, the way we understand it, the way we see it, perceive it. And the difference between Zan Malchut, bless you, is it about... The, the higher divine revelation experience, or is it about the way God, the interplay of God in the world? It's like, uh, we don't need a witness about the sun shining, but we need a witness that it's time for the it involves mankind exactly we don't determine exactly it, there's a, we have a relationship with the moon as opposed to the sun the sun's doing its own thing this is why and we're going to read this soon inside but this is why the Talmud says it's because from Tractate Megillah I believe no Tractate Sukkah this is why the Talmud says that the nations of the world prim- predominantly they set their calendars according to the sun the solar calendar. Whereas the Jewish people set their calendar according to the moon. Why? So many different reasons given. One is, yeah, because the moon alludes to fluctuation in Jewish history. We've been the times that we've been up, times we've been down, times that we're 
you know, we're fully, you know, fully there and, and at top of our game in times when it almost looks like uh, the Jews are, are almost annihilated, God forbid, and, and so small almost, and then we come back again. And so the, the his, Jewish history is like the moon waxing wane. But there's a much deeper idea here as well. And that is, it's a question of perspective on God. I said last week that the hedonists and the spiritualists share one thing in common. They both agree that God is not here. The spiritualist says, God's not here. I've got to find God in a meditation. I've got to find God in a prayer. I've got to find God in a song. I've got to find God in a mountaintop. I've got to find God in a sanctuary. I've got to find God wherever, somewhere else. Because God's not here. The hedonist says, God's not here. So let me indulge. It's the same perspective. God's not here. The Jewish perspective, as I shared about Purim, Pesach, all of the Jewish perspective is God's here. God's right here. The sun perspective is that God transcends the world. God is higher than the world. God doesn't take the world in consideration. God is that constant shining force that transcends the world. That's true. Yeah, there is an aspect of God that... Absolutely. There is a force of God that does transcend the world. The moon perspective is... God is reflected in the world. And God is in everything that is subject to change in the world. All of the imperfection that we see in the world. All of the, uh, the temporal reality that we see. All the finite reality that is here today, gone tomorrow. That's also powered by God. Which creates this, this shock in the mind. Good to see you. Creates a shock in the mind. If God is infinite... So how can God be behind? How can God be infusing the finite, withering grass or flower with life? If God is infinite, so God is not in the flower, God is not in the tree, God is not in the blade of grass. And the answer is, you're limiting God. Stop limiting God to be infinite. Who told you that God is infinite? Your finite mind told you that God is infinite. Because infinite also is a finite definition. Because infinite means that God can't be here. So Mazel Tov, you have now limited God in your finite search for in for in your finite search to not limit God. You and I, as flawed human beings, turned out that we limited God to greatness. God is too great. God's power is too big for a blade of grass. God's power is too great for a little fish, right? That's here today, gone tomorrow. For a human being that's frail and flawed, God can't be here. This is the spiritualist speaking, or the hedonist speaking. Therefore, God's not here. So either we're going to look for Him somewhere else, or we're not going to bother. Because if He's not here, then then whatever, just enjoy. But it all comes down to the same point. It's It's a finite human being's search to uh, search to understand God, we limit God to something that is too big for here. That's the sun approach. The sun, again, is big, it's powerful, it's not limited, it's not boxed in, it, it doesn't relate to our reality. The sun is big, and it says, look, you want my light, take it, you don't want it, don't take it. It's, I'm not working with you, it's about me, I'm shining. 
So that's God. God is too big. The perspective of the moon is God God descends, if you want to use such terms, they're, they're inaccurate, but maybe we can... God descends from on high to give this world, to give our limited reality, life and, and vitality. God is here. God is the energy running through every blade of grass, running through every tree, every flower, every fish. God is the energy of the world itself, of that temporal, finite reality. God is that energy. And if I remember, you're, you linked that to the difference between Havaya and Elohim. Exactly. So that's why Pharaoh was able to say, I know about Havaya, but, don't, but I don't understand Well, no, he said, I know Elohim. No, no, he actually said, I know Elohim. I know the power of nature, right. but I don't, I don't reckon... It, it was a little bit of a twist on it. Okay. You're right. It's a, it requires well, a little bit of a twist. the spiritualist, right? Well, yeah. In a way, he says, I know Havaya. In a sense, I know Havaya and I know Elohim, but I don't recognize that Havaya is Elohim. Right, I get that. That's what he was saying. I have a lot of Elohims. I got a lot of powers here. I know that there's power in the world. I know, and I'm one of the powers. The Nile's a power. The you know the constellation of Aries is power. You know, there might be a Havai, but they're not in. Yeah, there's a Havai, but but Havai doesn't mean anything to me because it's not here. It doesn't doesn't relate to our reality. And and the message, the 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 message of Torah, the Jewish message is no Havai is a Lukim. It's all one. It's all one God. Yeah, there are two. There's a sun and a moon, but it's really one light. It's really one light. The same, the same light of the sun, in a sense, is coming down. Now, it's going to look a little bit differently, and it's going to, it's going to, it's going to change. It has that, that finiteness, in a sense, but it's the same light. It's the light of... Havaya is Yurkevavke, is the divine name of Hashem. And Elohim is Elohim. But uh, that's not, you don't, that's, you won't see that inside right now. So you don't, you don't have to get stuck on, the, on, on that terminology right here. But the, the, the general notion I want to bring out is that why is it that we follow the, the calendar, we base our calendar, we base our months on the cycle of the moon 28 days. The reason is, or sorry, not 20, 29 and a half days. The cycle of the moon is 29 and a half days. It's for a very simple reason. It's because Judaism is all about recognizing that God is here. That God is not up there. Those that say God is up there... That's a sun perspective. That's a masculine, the way we're understanding it, that's a masculine energy perspective. That God is up there. God is too big for right here. The feminine perspective is, God is right here. The moon perspective. Make sense? Yeah, yeah. God has to be right here. I mean... I like to hear that. No, I, I mean... But not everyone... That, that's, not a, that's not a universal... People say that there's power here... But the power is disconnected from God. There's life here, but life has its own energy. There are other gods. There are many forces here. So the point higher power, it just might not be God. Well, no. What I'm saying is you can believe in many powers, and it might not be connected to a higher power. The point here is to bridge the higher power with all the powers that we see here. And all the powers that we see here are really all reflections. Well, God can't be up there because we have this building, we have the people, we've got the flowers, we have the grass. I'm with you. I'm not going to... I'm not going to... I'm not going to... I'm not going to... Okay. Argue that. That's that's good. We're on the same page. Absolutely. Can he be in both places? He can be. He can be. Yeah. There's a sentence. I think I saw, of course, but I'm curious. On the book, they have the picture of the moon, but they have something that looks like a rope, but I'm curious if, if you know what that means. What looks like the old um, uh, telephone cord on my rotary phone. <laughs> <laughs> Except mine was usually more tangled. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. Like no idea. John Yeah, perfect. The sun is proactive. 
is reactive. Yep. So if you're just the moon, you've got to have something to react against. Malchut receives its energy from Zah. It's reactive and then it's proactive in a profound way. It has both el- both elements, reactive and proactive. It's a recipient and a giver. It's both. The mo- uh, absolutely. The moon, the moon, huh? The moon receives and it also gives. The moon gives light to us at night when the sun when the sun's not doing that. So it's a, it's a it's definitely a giver. You ask anybody and back in the day, anybody that traveled at night, oh, they needed to travel when the moon was out in full glory. I understand that, but, but w- the way you're perceiving it, again, we're, perception here in this case has to be reality because we're going by what the message that we're seeing. So the perception is a reality, so what we're, we're getting the light from the moon. In this. You're right, it's all the same light. Havai and Elikim are the same. The divine power of the infinite and the finite is... So, alright, let's read this inside. And... 52. The thing is, I wanted to get into... I wanted to get into the, uh, the idea of the feminine cycle also reflecting the, the cycle of the moon. Either we will be able to get into that or we won't. 52. All right. I take it away. Right in the middle, third paragraph, therefore the idolaters. Therefore the idolaters establish their calendars according to the sun rather than the moon for this same reason. By the way, why idolaters? Why not other nations? First of all, it's in a brackets, which means it's not in the original. But why idolaters? The, the nations. Why idolaters? Why are we pegging? Huh? Well, t- keep on reading. You'll, you'll see one. Notwithstanding the fact that the sun is indeed superior to the moon, yet this is precisely the point. The error lies in saying that his glory transcends the heavens, that his glory is upon the spiritual realm with no role in the physical realm at all. In other words, the idolater is actually serving something. This is why I said the difference between the, the spirituals and the hedonists. The idolater is serving something. In other words, the perspective of the hedonist, if somebody says there's no God at all, or the atheist, somebody says there's no God at all, so then you don't, it, it's not a sun, you don't have a, sun, a solar calendar either. Right? Because there's no, this, this, the idea of establishing the calendar according to the sun is saying that there is a God, but God is removed from this reality. So God is higher than the here and now. God is higher than the here and now. That's a very sun, that's a sun perspective. That's a masculine perspective. That His glory, God's glory transcends the heavens. God's, God's in the heavens. Even higher than the heavens, but God's certainly up there. God's not here. With no role in the physical realm at all. That's the sun perspective. That's why the idolaters, and it's been, it's been accepted by most in the world, uh, without knowing the source of it, that's why this solar calendar is uh, is king. Three hundred sixty-five day calendar it goes by the the uh, the cycle of the sun. Continue. By contrast, the Jews establish their calendar according to the moon, as if to declare that he is both God of the earth and God of the heavens, and that above and below are equal before him. In other words, God is not only the God of heavens, but God is God is also God of the earth. God is also here on earth. And again, the sun, even though I know the sun also gives light to the earth. We're not saying the sun doesn't give. But the sun is all about something higher than. Something, in a sense, infinite, powerful, not taking into consideration. The recipient. It doesn't have that fluidity. It doesn't have that... 
flux. It doesn't have that flux where it's demonstrating a working with the recipient. The sun is representative of Zah, which are the powers that are beyond relating to the world. And so the Jewish perspective is that God is both the God of heaven and the, and the God of earth. And I love that phrase, above and below are equal before Him. In other words, God is not any closer to heaven than He is to earth. Continue. Thus, although the earth is subordinate to the heavens, God looks down so low with detailed supervision upon heaven and earth equally. So, although you can say, and I, I, you know, we have to be careful here because you know, how accurate is this? He says, although the earth is subordinate, he doesn't actually say in the Hebrew subordinate. He says, the, the earth is on a lower level than the heavens. In other words, on one level, you can say it's lower. It's a step down. So you have the higher worlds, right? And then you have the worlds descending, getting lower and lower until our created reality emerges. So on the one hand, our world is lower than a spiritual world, is lower than the world of Atzilut, the world of emanation. That's on one level. But when you look at it on, in a bigger picture, uh, you know, in a, in a bigger context, then you recognize that to an infinite God, a truly infinite God, the degree, the steps between heaven and earth are, are irrelevant, as we'll see soon. Continue. Indeed. Where am I? Indeed. Indeed, precisely. Oh, Indeed, precisely because God dwells on high, does He look down so low upon heaven and earth equally? For in truth, even the heavens are a descent and degradation for him. So what he says here is because God is so high, it's not that God is so high, therefore he's in heaven. God is so high, therefore he could be so low. God is tr- The true definition of an infinite God is a God that is no closer to heaven than, than to earth. And this is the truth of, of the God is set forth in Torah and Judaism. Is that, you know, for a human mind to say, well, God is so big, He's too big for this earth, is, as I, said, as I mentioned a moment ago, as I mentioned many times, is limiting God. Who are you to limit God? God is not too big for the earth. God is so big that heaven and earth are equally insignificant. What God is closer to a spiritual world than a physical world? Why? Because God is spiritual? God's not spiritual. God is God. God is everything. So God is everywhere. God is in heaven and in earth, equally. So even though we can say that when it comes to spirituality, there are higher worlds and lower worlds, and there's a, there, there's a, there's a hierarchy when it comes to spirituality, when it comes to godliness, God is equally everywhere. God is an equal opportunity God. Yeah. So I was thinking of a couple things. One is that you know, the moon and the earth, in a way, have a, much, have a, very, they have a very close relationship. Everyone <coughs> has their own particular moon. And also I was thinking that when... There's more of a symbiotic of I'm, I'm, I care about you as opposed to I'm, I'm just... I'm, I'm bigger than you and if you want it you can take it but I'm, I'm, I'm not worried about you. Yeah. And when there's darkness the human being well, not only human beings but life on earth is dependent upon the light from the sun in the darkness. When the sun is no longer visible You mean the moon? The moon, where right. the life is dependent upon light from the from the moon, right? Yeah, which is kind of metaphorical in some way. Absolutely, and again, you know, with the sun and the moon, we, you know, again, the, the 
it might be sitting in, 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 in a, somebody might be saying, well, the sun is also affecting the earth. I understand that. But look at the relationship of sun to the earth and the moon to the earth. One is, one is in flux. One when the is, sun has abandoned, in other words, when the energy, however you want to define it, when the sun has gone away, there's still the moon right. that allows some light to shine. And again, I think it helps to get back to the, to the physical example of this, which is the, you know, the masculine and the feminine or father and mother in the creation of a child. So the father has certainly a role. The father has uh, certainly a genetic role in that. And yet, it's, you know, the, it's, the female is carrying the child. So the female has that, there's a certain closeness there. There's a certain change that happens. Well, look at the, and this kind of gets into, you don't really have time to get into it, but this kind of gets into the bio, biology of what he speaks about in the next paragraph, which is the comparison of the cycle of the moon to the feminine cycle. You know, there's no, as far as I know, there's no masculine cycle in the same way. Because you're not a home for life. So if you're not a home for life, so then you, it's all like, if you want to take it, if you don't want I like, it's, I'm not dealing with with creating something new. I'm not. I don't have to deal with the the creating a, an environment that's home for life that has to work with a new life that's emerging. I'm just about. It's almost. I'm about, I'm about me. It's like the sun. It's like I'm constant, consistent. Take it or leave it. But this is this is what I have. This is what I have to offer. Whereas the feminine, the biology of the feminine, is that it's a home for life. It's a home for life. That create that has to foster that, and there's it's it's a complicated thing. It's a complicated, it's a nuanced thing, and it. And look, we can get into the details of. I don't want to run through it. I, mean, I think we'll we'll start off with this next week. The idea of the moon, huh? No, there's a lot. There's a lot to talk about. The idea of the moon, kind of developing, right? The moon getting, um, in a sense. The, 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 yeah, the, 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 the coming to its fulfillment and then waning. This is representative of, of the feminine cycle as well. I mean, it lines up, it, it lines up pretty perfectly, which we'll get into. We're, we'll explain all of this next week. Yeah. Is there any um, Kabbalistic metaphor around this stuff with Malchut, for instance, with eclipses, which is a time when there is no moonlight, uh, sunlight on the moon, regardless of your um, flashlights. Make sure to have a so flashlight. I, I, you know, I don't. I, I'm. Sh- it may be talked about somewhere. I just don't have any. I don't have any recollection of what the significance of that. I, everything has a lesson and significance, but I don't know what that would. Well, I can't think of. Well, okay. if, we're, if we're the Earth, and I guess the Sun is God, and the Moon is an angel, you know, reflecting or whatever. No, the Moon is also God. The Moon and the Sun are both God, and we're the Earth. Then. When we don't see the light or the reflection of the light, we're getting in our own way. So we're we're completely blocking out light. Yeah, maybe we could be our own. Yeah, that faith, I guess, is still there. Right? Yeah. Yeah. By the way, when we say the moon, sun, and moon are God, we're not advocating now idol worship and serving the sun and moon. We're talking about the metaphor. The metaphor of the sun and the moon are the metaf- the idea that there's a divine energy that is big. The masculine divine energy is bigger than the world, is, is, is above creation. The feminine energy 
is all about creation. Malchut is all about creation and giving life to the world. All right, so let's, uh, let's recap. Let's recap what we did today. We spoke about the idea of Purim being another example of this, uh, this dual, this, the possibility of, du- of a dual um, perspective on life. Is our power lying in the hands of a human being? Or does it lie in the hands of God? Um, is my protection, uh, does my protection lie in the form of a government? Does it lie in the form of angels or constellations or other forces? Or does it, uh, or do I have a direct connection with, with God? We explained that this is, uh, this is the distinction between the mistake that they made with enjoying the invitation to go to the feast as opposed to uh, coming back and recognizing the unique uh, Jewish perspective, which is that God is in control. Um, when they allowed God to be in control, that's when the, the situation itself changed and it opened up the new reality that oh, the salvation is already in place. Esther is already the queen, and we already have the answer to the problem, but it was just, which I forgot to mention this detail, it was about opening up the vision to something higher to realize, oh, we actually have, the answer's already here. We couldn't see the answer because we were too consumed with us. We were stuck in the brush, so we couldn't see the bigger picture, and the bigger picture is there's there's no problem. God has already put the answer before before the question. So that's, uh, that's one message. Then we spoke about, again, the idea of the sun and the moon. The sun is representative of the masculine energy of the divine. This, the moon is representative of the feminine energy of the divine. We said, we, just to recap, we said that the, the God has... There's two, two forms of divine energy, the masculine form and the feminine form. One is about... One is higher than dealing with the world. One is dealing with the world, in a sense, on its own level. The sun... Is so one is giver, one is receiver. Za malchut, sun gives, moon receives. We said that another angle to understand this is that the, the sun is constant. Since it's constant, it, it demonstrates lack of, uh, in a sense, not dealing with the recipient, whereas the moon, which waxes and wanes, demonstrates that it is dealing with the recipient and therefore does fluctuate based on the needs of the recipient. And in, in, in our context, it's that there's an energy, the energy of the divine in the world is an energy that works with every detail of creation, all of the creations, all of the, all of living, all of life itself. And so you have different forms of life and a different energy. Thank you, a different energy that uh, that is uh, that is present in a, a divine, the divine, the soul of a rock is different than the soul of a tree, is different than the soul of an animal, is different than the soul of a human being. And so, but it's all a soul. It's all divine energy. So here you have your wax and waning. It's an energy that works with every creation, every creature on its own level. We said, therefore, the Jewish calendar is aligned with the moon. Because the, the idea is to recognize within time itself, that time itself is sanctified with God. God, is self, God Himself is involved in time, is involved in every detail of change in this world. Time is... You know, a moment is here and then it's gone. The next moment is a new moment. But God is, the infinite God is found in finite time, in temporal time. Time that's, that's so scattered, that's so here, now, gone in a moment, God is, God is ever-present. This is the idea that Jewish time evokes. Whereas secular time, so to speak, solar time is, well, God is, God is out there. And what's here? Oh, here's where we play. This is our playground. This is where there are other forces at play, but it's not God. Whereas the Jewish idea is to tie God, to bring God back into this world.
That's the conversation. Look, and this, this is what Abraham did, the first Jew. That's why we call Abraham the first Jew. Even though it was before the receiving of the Torah at Sinai, he didn't have Torah in the formal way. We call him the first Jew. Why is he the first Jew? Because he was the first individual that endeavored to really bring about this connection between heaven and earth. Between, between the God of the heavens and the God of the earth. Whereas everyone else was serving idols and saying, yeah, we know God, but here we have idols that run the show. Abraham says, no, no, no. no. There's no, there are no idols. He smashed the idols. The idols don't have any power. It's the same God in heaven that's the God on earth. This is, uh, this is the accomplishment of Abraham. And this is, uh, this is a message that is very powerful for each of us to carry in our own lives. And in a sense, when we do, it, it, as we have from the story of Purim, it takes us out of this, uh, this false, limited reality. It opens, up, opens us up to a greater truth. And please God, may all of our challenges be resolved like the Purim story. With Hamantashen. Okay. May all of our challenges be resolved like in, in the way of Purim where we see, once we open ourselves up to a higher truth, we see that there's no problem to begin with. That the big problem that you thought you had, there's a Haman, he's gonna, and there's no way out of it. You're stuck. You're stuck in the perspective of Haman has the power, he has the seal of the king, there's a decree out there, total annihilation, that's it, we're done. There's no answer. And then you see, you open yourself up to higher reality, and you see, there's no problem. Not only is there an answer, there's no problem. Because Esther's the queen, and very soon, Haman will be hanged, and it'll be done. We're not advocating violence in, in all of our conflict resolutions. But the point is, 